It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. Hey, I'm Michelle Mendoza, and we are going to be talking about life today on our Science and Technology Tuesday. Get ready. So really, what is life? Check this out. Uh, This is Anthony Hopkins. We're just going to go to Hollywood because we do like to elevate Hollywood as if they are the gurus of all knowledge. They can tell us because they act like it in movies. They can tell us in real life, and sometimes we'll even believe it. Anthony Hopkins on the meaning of life. You know, anything with faith, you can move mountains and... uh trust and let go and all that sort of thing, you know, and I used to just throw myself into it. And then the, when the negatives came to my mind, I would, uh, positive sounds in my head, you know, I'd say I can do it. You know? And I, I used to meditate and uh, visualize myself doing it. And I used to visualize myself on like a kind of, uh, trying to visualize myself doing those sort of fanning cards and springing them. And, and gradually, surprising the power of mind, what happens, you know, your muscles begin to respond. It's like anything, really, if you playing the piano or driving a car. It comes through relaxation. That's the meaning of life. And I leave that thinking, well, that sounds nice, but I'm a bit confused, Anthony. I mean, God bless you. You're, you're trying to find a better way to experience life, but that doesn't really sound like the meaning of life. So let's go to funny man Jim Carrey on the meaning of life. I've often said that I wished people could realize all their dreams and wealth and fame and so that they could see that it's not where you're going to find your sense of completion. Because life doesn't happen to you, it happens for you. How do I know this? I don't. But I'm making sound, and that's the important thing. Sometimes I think that's the only thing that's important, really. It's just letting each other know we're here. Now, uh, it always sounds best when you have emotional music under it and look it's life is what you make out of it life is happening for you but really what is it about um what's the purpose i think a little later in this he says well there's really no purpose in life but what we give it and that's a great way to experience life but still is that the meaning of life what is life an amazing thing that science, every time you turn around, you find another amazing thing that science is able to do. But in that, in those discoveries, in those whoa, aho moments, you can also see a deeper story. And we're going to be looking for the God story together. And in the midst of it, hopefully give you reasons to believe. And now, reasons to believe. Welcome with me, Dr. Fuzz Rana, Vice President of Research and Apologetics at Reasons to Believe. Uh, Fuzz is the author of some amazing books. Um, And I tell this story all the time because sometimes we have new listeners, but I was at a science conference of Christian scientists, and I was sitting under one of his teachings, and it was... uh, 
if you've not if you've not worked out for a while, imagine going to a gym and suddenly you're you're with a Olympic training team and you're like trying to keep up. I'm in this conference and I am probably five sentences behind. I'm pretty impressed that I could even be there as we're talking about something as uh, Fuzz was talking about something. I and I don't even remember what it was, but de- dealing with uh, molecular biology. Now, I say that because, Fuzz, you also write a host of books like Who Was Adam? Creating Life in the Lab, uh, Humans 2.0, which is so fascinating. A few of those uh, those books are going to fit into our topic today. But you are able to not only wax poetic and go over the heads of most mortals, but <laughs> you can, but you also have a way of relating and writing deep things in science that make us all understand it, but also understand a deeper story. And that's part of what you all do at Reasons to Believe. Dr. Fuzrana, my old friend, thanks for joining us today, buddy. Michelle, thanks for having me again. It's always fun to hang out with you. Oh, absolutely. And this this week, we're taking on a story that uh, to me is fascinating because it's talking about growing uh, artificial cells that behave and divide like natural cells and the implications. Think about that as you're listening or watching right now, the implications of that. If we can create cells, man-made cells, essentially, can we create man-made life? Can you? And you wrote a book on this, Creating Life in the Lab. You've also written the book, more recently, Humans 2.0, which has an interesting uh, little diddly from a talk show host in Seattle that in the beginning. <laughs> Never mind. Uh, but <laughs> you wrote that book as well, which kind of takes that creating life in the lab to the next level of, are we going to be able to transmigrate into uh, humans 2.0? Can we not only create a new life, but can we meld that with who we are now and become some cybernetic, futuristic, superhero race? So much to take on. Fuzz, can we just talk about what this story is? Yeah. Well, you know, what you're making reference to, Michelle, is the fact that as uh, biochemists, as life scientists, we are developing such a, a fundamental understanding of how life works. Okay. And we also simultaneously are developing very powerful tools that allow us to manipulate living systems to the point that we are looking at taking control, quote unquote, of uh, the evolution of life on earth, including our own evolution as human beings, where we are looking to try to evolve human beings by melding technology with us to create, you know, the, the post-human species, or we're looking at going in the lab and being able to engineer novel, non-natural synthetic life forms of our, of our own design. And this raises, of course, all kinds of very interesting questions, scientifically speaking. In ter- uh, it opens up opportunities for incredible technology, but it raises unbelievably profound questions that have ethical and philosophical and theological implications. And it even raises questions about what is our place as human beings in the cosmos? 
Some of the implications of this story, and, and maybe we should just spell out this story, first of all, are amazing. Medically, uh, the things it can do for people. And, you know, there's, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but I think oftentimes these kinds of uh, discoveries come from two places. One, can we? And two, uh, what can we do with it? You know, from a place of betterment for all of the things that we can do. But I wanted to talk about this particular story that science or scientists are building an artificial cell that grows and divides like a natural one. Can you give us a little insight into what they're doing uh, and what their thought process behind it is. Sure thing. Well, this is work that really represents the latest milestone in a project that's been ongoing for at least 20 years. And this is work headed up by Craig Venter and his team of collaborators most recently at the J. Craig Venter Institute. And their ultimate goal is to create this artificial cell that is a minimal life form that they can then use kind of as a chassis to to add additional genes to, to create a wide range of microorganisms that can, that can carry out uh, all kinds of different in functions like uh, serving as bioreactors to make pharmaceutical agents or vaccines or to create biofuels or bioplastics. And so they really see this as the next revolution in technology ushering us into uh, what we might call the synthetic biology age. And so that, that work that's being reported is their latest, in, again, milestone in terms of creating this artificial minimal cell. And they really are very close to, to achieving what they set out to do 20 years ago. Oof. So the, the behavior of these cells uh, mimic what happens in real life in bi uh, natural biological cells, correct? So, yes, that's exactly right. Yes. They divide. They So are they alive? Uh, I think they actually are alive. And part of the reason I say that is because of the way that Craig Venter went, around, went about doing this. So instead of uh, starting from the bottom up where he has adds chemicals to create a, a chemical super system that begins to assume the properties of life, he's approached it through what's called a top-down approach where he and his team have identified what they believe to be the minimum genome, which means the minimum set of genes that would be necessary for an organism to actually exist as a bona fide life form. And they discovered that it takes about, oh, 400, and 400 to 450 different genes in order for life to be possible. And so uh, if you think of a genome as the set of instructions, the genes are portions of those instructions that specify the production of proteins, which are machines inside the cell that carry out certain operations. And so when you say that there's a, a minimum genome of 450 genes, it means that you need about 450 individual distinct proteins that are working together to carry out all the operations needed for an organism to exist as a life form. And through that process, we've discovered that you have to have uh, the mechanisms in place to replicate that genetic information. You have to have the machinery in place to build proteins. You have to be able to build the cell envelope and maintain it. And then 
be able to harvest energy from the environment. And so, uh, so uh, what they've done is they've again created this a synthetic version of this minimum genome and they've used it to reboot an existing cell, transforming it into this artificial non-natural life form. So they really have created a bona fide artificial cell that truly is alive. Okay. So I guess that goes back to some of the opining that you did in your book. Uh, what was it, 10 years ago? Forgive me if I don't remember right, Creating Life in the Lab. That's right. Yeah. In fact, I talk about uh, the work that Craig Venter had done up to that point in, in the process of trying to create an artificial cell. So in the contravening 10 years, he and his team have made uh, significant strides towards actually creating this this uh, this minimal cell. All right, and you, we're looking at a time where it's almost as though we're climbing on top of the Tower of Babel and saying, "Hey, we can do anything." Right? Uh, it, it seems like there is no limit to what man can do. So, you are literally saying that man created life. So we're the new gods. Whoa, what's going on here? Yeah, well, you know, the, for, the, for those people who hold to a materialistic worldview, when they think about the work that's going on in synthetic biology, they really argue that this is really highlighting, uh, you know, our place in the cosmos and that it really undermines the idea that there's anything really truly special about life or anything truly special about us as human beings in the sense that we are able to create and manipulate life at will, you know, that, that they argue that this is undermining, you know, the, the, the biblical account of, of origins where we need a creator, you know, to, to bring life into existence. Oh, but and wait, so there's more. <laughs> I mean, that sounds, sounds like a reasonable argument. I mean, truly, because come on, we're making essentially making life, albeit it's a little blobby cell. You know, you're not creating a, a pastrami sandwich or anything. And, you know, so don't go bragging quite yet. I mean, it is cool and all, but there is seriously, whoa, hello, more to the story. Look how excited she is. Because um, it, it, it doesn't take a molecular biologist, it could just be a girl like me to say, well, well, wait a minute, they created this life in the lab. Doesn't that require a bit of intelligence? And by nature, wouldn't that be, oh, I don't know, intelligent design? Yeah, well, you know, you're ex extremely perceptive. And, and that was essentially the point of the, the book, uh, Creating Life in the Lab, was yeah. that, you know, even though I've heard a large number of original life researchers say, look, if we can create even a simple cell in the lab, that means that it's all that much more likely that chemical evolution could happen because there's nothing truly special about life. But the irony is that it, it requires enormous amount of ingenuity on the part of the researchers to be able to pull something like this off. As I mentioned, Craig Venter and his team of collaborators, which represent among the best scientists in the world, have been working 20 years on this project. And they probably have spent, I would estimate on the order of close to $100 million to even get to this particular point. And there's Nobel laureates that have collaborated with Craig Venter throughout this process. And it, when, when, as a biochemist, when I look at what they've done, it is really science at its very best. The level of ingenuity 
that they bring to the table is just absolutely remarkable. They're so much, they're, they're so clever in, in how they develop the strategy that they've executed to try to, to, to create this minimal cell. And then it requires, you know, it, it, and they're relying on really a couple of centuries of accrued scientific knowledge. And then it's, the, again, highly skilled scientists working on detailed protocols in the lab, performing careful manipulations under precisely controlled conditions to pull this off. So what they've done is ironically, as you pointed out, demonstrated intelligent agency is necessary to, to, to bring about the creation of life. And so instead of undermining the biblical story, they really are strengthening the biblical account of origins. Really, you can just logically say in a nutshell, what are the chances that a couple of scientists just went out, uh, got a few beers, spilt those beers, uh, knocked over their uh, garlic aioli as they're you know, dipping their fries and went, oh my gosh, we created life. That's really what we're saying in essence when we look at a completely materialistic view of the universe. Uh, but just like this tiny cell, um, it, the likelihood of creating it without intelligence is just, yeah, not happening. So I get that. But the, the other step is understanding a bit of what they did discover. I mean, they're able to break down this life, um, the, or this uh, cell rather, in a pretty minimal way. And this is a, 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 let's talk about what this cell is and what it isn't. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, that is remarkable to me, again, as, as a biochemist, is how complex life actually is, even in its, in its bare, minimal form. You know, it's, this, is, this organism, which, again, consists of a, a minimum genome that is producing just the core biochemical systems needed for that entity to, to uh, again, exist as a bona fide life form, uh, even though it's a minimal cell, it's unbelievably complex. And, and we still don't fully understand everything that's going on in this minimal cell. They've identified what they believe to be the minimum genes that are necessary, but a third of those genes, they have no idea what they actually are doing in the cell. They know that they are essential, but they don't even know what they're doing. And when they created the first version of this synthetic minimal cell, which was, and that work was published in 2016, when the cell divided, it was producing all these really bizarre, uh, unusual shapes. And they discovered that they needed an additional 20 genes that, again, they're not fully sure what these genes are actually doing uh, in order to, for the cells to replicate and form regular spherical shapes. So even though they've identified this minimum genome, we, have a, we, we still don't understand everything that is necessary for life in its minimal form. And so the complexity is astounding and it's hard to envision how something like that could have evolved through, through chemical evolution when you think about how absolutely complex minimum life is. That's what I wanted to get to as you're talking. I'm thinking, now wait, wait a minute. If 
let's just say for the sake of argument, there is some entity, um, that there is some kind of designer up there. What does that say about their level of intellect that we don't have weird shaped blobs that just didn't make the cut still floating around somewhere? <laughs> that there wasn't just a hit and miss and a little trial and error, uh, error. And let's see, just let's see what we can. Fl- oh, yeah, that didn't turn out so well. That's no fuzz Rana right there. Let's just try again, right? Yeah. And, and, you know, in many respects, even though they're referring to this as a minimal cell, that really is a misnomer because these organisms um, have to, or these minimal cells, I should say, have to grow under highly specialized laboratory conditions where the researchers have created this growth medium that's supplying all of these nutrients that cells that could exist independently in the environment actually are able to produce. Okay. And so, and so it's really a misnomer to say that this is really the minimum requirements for life because they are, are essentially short-circuiting a, a number of, of biochemical operations that are critical uh, for organisms to exist independently. So we know from surveying the genomes of organisms that can live independently in the environment that the minimum gene set for those types of, of organisms is somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 genes, depending upon the particular environment that that organism is living in. So what they produced is really not truly minimum life. Uh, and, and so minimum life is even more complex than what they've made in the lab. Oh, my gosh. But it does, it, it is astounding. The, the What they've been able to do is astounding. But as you point out, if it's... It's just, it's not even minimal of life. I think it's important to point out because you know that the headlines in media are going to be, scientists have solved the problem of creating life. You know, we just do. We're, we're sensationalists, but that's not really what's going on here. We can say no. scientists have created life and it creates all of these imageries, but then we dive it back and go, okay, here's what's really going on. Yeah. 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 I think, and this work is is some of the most powerful evidence that we can bring to, to bear for a, a necessary role that a creator must play in the origin of life. Um, you know, and and so again, I th- it, what I like about this this work it, towards that end is it's we're not arguing that things appear to be designed because they look like they're designed, or we're not arguing that evolution can't explain uh. it, therefore it's designed. But rather, what we're saying is empirically, <laughs> we know what it takes to pull something like this off. An intelligent agency is a necessary, you know, contributing factor to this work. And if that's the case, then why would we think intelligent agency wouldn't be needed uh, if, uh, again, uh, life is emerging on the surface of the earth? Let's talk about this on a practical standpoint, some of the extreme benefits. And, well, I think you and I have watched a few sci-fi movies. We could probably imagine some of the some of the dangers, but we can talk about those, too. Yeah, well, you know, in, in many respects, you know, I, I am highly, ex- I'm very excited about what this work represents in terms of the next wave of technology, you know, because... The, the, the grand vision of people that are working in synthetic biology in, in their best moments is to envision creating these bioreactors that can take relatively inexpensive 
materials like carbon dioxide and, and ammonia and, and, and things like that and feed them to microorganisms that can convert them into highly valuable products like medicines and vaccines and bioplastics and biofuels. And this technology is going to be produced through green processes. Uh, some people even envision creating microorganisms that could remediate the pollution in the environment. And so this is really very exciting stuff that, that really is ushering in some exciting possibilities for, you know, for the future in terms of what this technology could deliver. But on the other hand, you know, this is also very frightening stuff because, you know, we, we, we are right now having conversations about what is the origin of the SARS-2 coronavirus? Was it something that leaked out of a lab, right? Oh my. Well, that's, right? <laughs> yeah. and, that, and so that's the concern that I think people have is that, yeah, this is very powerful technology, but what if one of these synthetic you know, uh, microorganisms gets out of the lab or out of the factory and winds up in the environment and suddenly does things uh, that we would never have expected you know, the, the, the amount of damage could be really quite, you know, quite concerning, you know, and, and of course, there are people, uh, you know, that think about, you know, strategic defense and things like that, that are deeply concerned about the work in synthetic biology, because they believe it may be laying out a roadmap for bioterrorists. Oh, use, there you go. Right. And so, so there's some very significant concerns connected to uh, this technology. Do you think uh, that technology so, could help me with these allergies? Because you're, you're, this is a little different. We're usually, we've been on radio together for many years and you're watching me here. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, there, there are some really wonderful things, but yeah, of course there are some scary things. And in that, are we not essentially flirting with the uh, possibility of playing God? Yeah. Well, you know, that's the, the, you know, when, when, you know, when people ask the question, you know, should we, should we play God? You know, my response is always, well, uh, I don't think we have much of a choice as human beings who are made in God's image uh, because we, we, we have to play God because we're made in God's image. And, and so I think the work that we see in synthetic biology really highlights the fact that we are image bearers. It provides, you know, support for the fact that we are exceptional as human beings. There's no other creature that has ever lived that has ever been able to produce this kind of technology and this kind of capability. And I think it, it, we are able to do it uniquely as human beings because we bear God's image. But the, the real question is, you know, uh, are we trying to take God's place when we do this kind of work? And I think there are many scientists that are doing this work with, the, the, with noble intent. But there, there are other people who really do see this work as justifying taking God's place. And that's when I think we really are concerned. And so instead of asking the question, should we play God? I think the, a better question might be, are we trying to take God's place? And you know, this is where the Christian worldview becomes so important because we have a, a realistic perspective on who we are as human beings. Yes, indeed. We are exceptional, we're image bearers, we're capable of incredible achievements that are positive and that are good, but we also recognize that we lack wisdom and that we also are, uh, are plagued with this thing called sin that oftentimes causes us to take 
the best that we can do and turn it into the worst of, of things. And that's the real concern, I think, when it mm. comes to these kind of advances. I think uh, something we need to delve into is how uh, striking the biblical worldview is as we advance in science. And I want to do that in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you that if you're listening or you're watching live, you can be watching on our Facebook page, My Michelle Live, or on our website at MyMichelleLive.com and ask questions. You can ask live of our guest, Dr. Fazrana, with reasons to believe. Uh, Joel was asking about the components of life that we can say, well, these scientists created life in the lab, but nothing comes from nothing. And I think what Joel is asking it about is the component that's needed to create this life. Where did they come from? So we're going to ask that of Dr. Fazrana in just a moment. But I have to give kudos to to our product of the month. Science and technology has created fuzz, my favorite, one of my favorite things in the world. I don't know why we don't have these here in the United States, but I love a good bidet. Shine. Where the sun don't. Tushy, it's got your backside at MyMichelleLive.com. That's right. It's a spa for your bum, and you can find it at MyMichelleLive.com. It's under 40 bucks, or you can't, or 50 bucks. It's, I mean, what could be better? Anyway, Fuzz, you still with me? <laughs> I sure am. <laughs> I had to go there. I had to go there. Um <laughs> Anyway, uh, from our from our listener, Joel, what about the components that were already there to create this life that these scientists were able to um, recreate? Yeah, you know, Joel's ask, asking a really perceptive question. And, and so I very much appreciate his point because, in effect, what Craig Venter is doing, as well as other people that are working in synthetic biology, is really not truly creating life uh, in the lab from scratch, but rather what they're doing is uh, kind of creating artificial cells by taking the biochemical systems that already exist and kind of piecing them together in, in a novel and original ways. Mm -hmm. But they're really truly not creating life from scratch. And, and you know this is actually highlighting the fact that the components that make up the cell display incredible properties that they have these just right properties that make them ideally suited to support life, to be suitable for life. And so I even wonder if we truly are gonna be able to create artificial cells from scratch uh, because of just how well designed the biochemical systems are. But, uh, and so we, we have to factor that into the, the, into the discussion when we talk about, you know, have scientists truly created life from, in the lab from nothing? And the answer is no, they haven't. Ouch. Okay, so let's put this in cooking terms. Uh, if I make a homemade cake from a box, I can add some really neat things and I can just take that cake to the next level, but I'm not really making it from scratch. Uh, if I if I take the flour, the eggs, mom's old German chocolate cake recipe, and I create that, that's considered from scratch. But if you really are going to make something from scratch, you would have had to have created the wheat in order to go into the flour. You would have had to create the chicken in order to go in... You know, to, to produce an egg, it really, if you keep reducing, 
logically, you think maybe there is something to this God story. And what I wanted to get to in our final minutes together, as we talk with Dr. Fuzz Rana of Reasons to Believe, uh, Fuzz, the biblical worldview seems to work congruently with what we see more and more in science. Now, we would argue because that's true, but if you are not coming from that standpoint, it's just, it's a um, twilight zoney. It's just like, whoa. Uh, but let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah well, you know, in, in many respects, uh, the more that I appreciate uh, the, the biblical worldview, the more impressed I am, even though I, I am a Christian, uh, because in a sense, the, the biblical worldview creates a milieu that makes science and, and technology possible. And it provides powerful motivation to study the world around us and to turn that insight into technologies that are going to benefit humanity. Uh, and it, I don't know that there's any other worldview that, that has that, that powerful motivation. But at the same time, the Christian worldview also has in place these, these parameters, these, these points of protection where we recognize that human beings are prone to folly, that we are sinful, that, that we can do things to undermine the sanctity and the dignity of human life. And I don't know of any worldview that gives you both that powerful motivation for science, but also that a powerful framework that ensures uh, certain safeguards are put in place to make sure that that technology that comes from the scientific insight is used for the best and the highest purposes. So, you know, to me, the Christian worldview has a whole lot to say to our culture, to our world, as we contemplate, should we develop these technologies? And if so, how should we use them? Fuzz, uh, final question. This was a really interesting story. And especially so since you were already up on this 10 years ago. So it's nothing new to you. You're like, this is old news. Come on, people. But to me, as you talk about a biblical worldview, I think we would be remiss in uh, not going a little bit past just the intelligent design factor of what took place in creating these cells, of what we see in the universe. It just seems to be logical. And that's maybe something that we can take on an academic level. If you're following me, we're not getting in, we're not going all Sunday school out on anyone right now. We're just saying academically, that's what the evidence leads to. But what I did want to get to is something that you often do in your books, on and reasons to believe all of the scholars there is that we can also see evidence kind of like fingerprints, if you will, of what this intelligent designer is. And I wanted to just get your thoughts on that because as a molecular biologist, you see those fingerprints in the extraordinary creation on tiny, tiny levels. Yeah. Well, you know, to, to me, when, you know, you ask the question, you know, who is responsible for the design that we see in the universe? You know, if you bring to bear what we've learned from astronomy as well as what we learned in, in biology, I think it, it really narrows that designer to some entity that would be like the God of the Bible. You know, astronomy indicates that this creator must be transcendent, must exist outside the universe and be powerful to br enough to bring the universe into existence. And 
when we see design in the universe, design in living systems, that design indicates it's coming from a, a person that has purpose and uh, that, that everything that we see is designed for a purpose. And that purpose increasingly looks like it's the advent of humanity. And, and so, uh, and, and the fact that we, again, see designs in biochemistry that are so similar to the designs that we produce as human beings suggest that, that, that there is a resonance between our mind as human designers and the design produced by this you know, transcendent being. And, and to me, this fits the biblical view of, of who human beings are, but it also fits the biblical view of who God is. And it tells us that this God wants, uh, has made us for a purpose. And you know, to me, what's mind boggling is that that purpose is for us to know him and to be in a, a relationship with him through the person of Christ. What an, what an, what an amazing thing for me as a scientist to think that the fingerprints I see for that creator uh, are just pointing to the fact that I can have a relationship with the God that brought all this into existence that I marvel at. So we've gone from just a, a little cell to absolute purpose in our lives, a hope in the midst of all of this craziness. That's something amazing. And that's kind of why I love taking on science and technology on my Michelle Live, because it, it really does lead us back to the God story. And uh, excuse me for just a moment. I'm going to grab one of your books off my shelf. This is Humans 2.0. A great book that you might want to pick up. Uh, I was going to try to find Creating Life in the Lab. Oh, I have that one, too. These are some of my favorite books. That's why they're so easy to, to grab. That's another one of Dr. Rana's books. I, yeah, I'm not there reading romance novels, people. These are, the, <laughs> these are the books. In fact, oh, my goodness, was it like four years ago I came down to see you all yeah. there at the headquarters of Reasons to Believe in Southern California. These folks were so amazing. They had a beautiful spread there. I got to sit down with these brilliant minds of the scholars there, and then they took me to their bookstore and said, pick something out, anything you want. Dude, I was like a, I was like a kid in a candy store. I'm like, my eyes were this big. And I'm thinking to myself, don't be greedy, don't be greedy. But no, seriously, uh, the books that you, and you can find them at reasons.org. Uh, you can go through a link on My Michelle Live. I am telling you, um, having a better understanding in a, a logical way of the universe and of science, that's what they're all about. And I love it. And it always bring, go, comes back to the God story. And that's why we are such good friends, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so much fun to have you, Fuzz. It really is. Thanks for making time for us today. Oh, my pleasure. It's, it's, again, I always enjoy talking with you, Michelle. So thanks for being so welcoming. Big hi to everyone there, all right? Love those guys there. Try not to dance. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com. And that's a wrap.